This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? A film that honestly feels a bit custom-made to scratch every one of the horror sub-genre itches that I have. But first, I am not alone. And I need to introduce the amazing guest. Now, I have referred to him as the man behind the boards here at Anatomy of the Scream, but is a front and center voice here as well, being a co-host on the White Ladies in Crisis show, Sexy and Surreal, You Should Watch, oh, Another thing, he also co-hosts on a podcast I have never mentioned here, Horror Queers, which is part of the Bloody Disgusting Network. He also does writing at Queer Horror Movies. Welcome to the pod, Joe. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. What a delight to finally get to see you in action. Yes. I, and I promise this is going, I hope this doesn't sound... Like a negative thing, I feel like this is the last podcast that you have guested on, that you have guested on every other single podcast <laughs> I can think of, <laughs> and now it's here. <laughs> you know what? We were building up to a grand <laughs> climax, and at this point now I can die happy. There you go. That's that's what I like to hear, big question mark. <laughs> you know what? You look forward to putting me in the ground now that I have accomplished this uh, mission. Oh, okay. well, okay. We'll go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, very fitting in, in the theme of oh, I think, the film that we are talking about. But I, I really am excited to have you here. Now, I joked a bit about horror queers, but I honestly break out in hives if I don't shout out horror queers at least every couple of weeks. I just feel unsettled in my soul. But I, I shout it out so often because I really do love it. And I think that you and your co-host, Trace, have such a really amazing and robust discussions about why a wide variety of horror and we're talking like across every subgenre and I really adored it from the moment that I started listening and it's kind of an, an inspiration for what for what I have started to do here because it was looking at films and discussing films from a specific perspective and themes characters creators within the LGBTQ plus community and what what kind of got that going? You know, that's that's an interesting question because a lot of the time people are just like, oh, tell us about the genesis of the podcast. And Trace and I have 
this sort of patented banter where we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we both wrote for Bloody Disgusting and we both realized we were queer. So we got together and worked on this. But finding the best way or maybe the way that worked the best for us as creators for how to facilitate those discussions, even, you know, which films we pick and that kind of stuff. It has been an ongoing process. I think for a lot of folks, they start off podcasting or writing because they they just want to have a, a voice or a foot in the conversation. And I think that that's so valuable because, as you said, everybody has this unique personality. Like People are bringing unique perspectives to the films that they're watching, even when maybe the film wasn't even intended for you as a primary audience. You can bring something different to your read, the way that you approach it, the things that you take away from it. And for Trace and I, that was part of what we wanted to do. We wanted to try to highlight just this really broad spectrum and change and maybe even challenge the way that people look at horror. Like, I grew up surrounded by a bunch of people who don't like horror movies. And that always frustrated me because I realized very quickly that people had a very specific definition of what constituted horror. And it was a lot of like 80s slashers, which I love, but also there's a deep bench catalog of films that people are not considering. So even, you know, like my husband is in, he's an avowed person who hates horror films. Like he, he is on record as like, I don't enjoy these movies, <laughs> but he sat with me and watched the movie that we're about to discuss. And he got a lot out of it. And I think for him, it's just not the classical quote unquote definition of a horror film. So I love using our respective shows to challenge people and say, well, what is horror? How does horror represent different people? What kinds of things are these films saying? Because it's not just TNA women being chased and slashed. No, I love what you said, because I think it's not just, okay, here's a film about a disabled character that mm-hmm. has this kind of plot line going through it that's somewhat relevant. It's really about deconstructing that. What is mm-hmm. it saying and how can we look at it from different perspectives to really shift the way that we talk about more just these big life topics and Mm -hmm. understand why representation and discussing these things from these unique perspectives is so valuable and important. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite things about your show is how you often reframe negative depictions or even characters that people actively don't like, like your work forcing me to reevaluate my relationship with Franklin in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was hugely impactful because I always looked at that character as just a very frustrating person. And, you know, I think that that's the important work that these conversations can have, even if that character was never intended to be anything more than a tropey, disabled, frustrating character our relationship to it as viewers can completely change the way that we approach the text, the conversations that we're having and so on. And I think that that's the value of informed, thoughtful conversation. And covering a wide variety of films also, which I think we we do across both of our our main shows. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's really about questioning like, why do we have these initial reactions to these yes. films or to these characters? And let's think, you know, I think one of the, the way that I get my foot in the door and having the Franklin conversation with folks 
because I do have that conversation <laughs> all the damn time. I imagine so. Yes. Um, God, Mike over at Pod and the Pendulum absolutely hates mm-hmm. because I will not shut up. Um, but it's always like, well, think about the time that this was made. Yes. And think about what the experience of being in a wheelchair needing a mobility device was like mm-hmm. at that time. This was pre-ADA. This was back when ramps and accessibility mm-hmm. were nothing. Right. And you have this character that's basically at the the will of everyone he's traveling with. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I think... Again, like listening to horror queers when I was really kind of getting into like the multitude of horror podcast, the conversations that you guys were having were just, I think it, it really got me excited and like, oh, people, people are doing this. People are having these amazing conversations and people are listening to these amazing conversations. Oh my goodness. This is so <laughs> exciting. I would like more. Right. Um, Joe, mm-hmm. I'm here to talk about a movie. Yes. What movie are we talking about? One of my all-time favorite contemporary horror films. So we're going to talk about Rose Glass's St. Maud. Yes, we are. What a movie. Oh, boy. This is a banger. Like, it holds up. It's everything I wanted it to be because, I mean... Maybe I'll just jump right in. I got to see the world premiere of this movie at TIFF a couple of years ago, and it was in the Midnighter session. Sometimes those films can be a challenge because you're watching them at midnight, often with a packed crowd. So it's very enthusiastically received. Even if the film isn't your jam, you're probably going to have a relatively good time. But like, this is a slow burn movie to be watching at midnight. But it's so atmospheric. I think technically this is such an exceptionally well-made movie. And I don't know. I I think as a queer person, as a feminist, as somebody who is really interested in religion but doesn't subscribe to it, like there's just so much going on in this like 84-minute movie that I can't help but love it. No, you you said it perfectly. Like, when I first saw this film, I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. But just in rewatching it for this record, I was just flabbergasted Mm -hmm. by how much is packed into that nice, compact runtime. It's so short. (laughs) It is. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this really does feel like this speaks to so many different things Mm -hmm. that... I I think are relevant to not only just me, my experience. I've talked a little bit about growing up in the soup, like around kind of adjacent Mm -hmm. to a super fundamentalist um, kind of Christian um, parent and also just um, caregiving, which is obviously something that, you know, is the day job. Um, So it's, and also being um, queer as well. So it's just, it's, I was like, wow, what? Dude, thanks for reading my dream journal. 
<laughs> it's checking all of the boxes for better or worse. <laughs> exactly. So let's call in friend of the pod Wikipedia for the plot synopsis so we can start discussing all of these little tidbits. A nurse named Kitty fails to save the life of a patient in her care despite attempting CPR. Sometime later, Katie, now referring to herself as Maud, has become a devout Roman Catholic and is working as a private palliative, palliative care nurse in an English seaside town. She is assigned to care for Amanda, a hedonistic former dancer and, chore and choreographer from the United States who is terminally ill with stage 4 lymphoma. Amanda is embittered by her fate and confesses to Maud that she fears the oblivion of death. Maud comes to believe that God has tasked her with saving the atheist Amanda's soul. Maud reveals to Amanda that she sometimes feels God's presence, and she and Amanda appear to be overcome with ecstasy as they pray together. Maud becomes suspicious of Amanda's lesbian companion, Carol, who visits regularly and with whom Amanda has sex. She implores Carol to stop visiting because she believes Amanda's soul is in jeopardy due to distractions of the flesh. Carol is incensed by this, accusing Maud of homophobia, but Maud rebukes this, stating that she would not care whether Carol were a man. I think the actual quote is, I wouldn't care if you had an eight-inch dick. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> a man or a woman. Um, Carol attends... Amanda's birthday party anyway, and in front of Maud, Amanda informs the partygoers that Maud tried to drive Carol away. The party guests laugh at Maud, calling her Saint Maud, and wrap a cover on her head. Amanda mocks Maud for trying to save her soul and suggests that she is a homophobic, a homophobic prude, jealous of her relationship with Carol. Maud strikes Amanda and is dismissed from her job. Believing that God has rejected her, Maud visits a pub to find companionship, but is rejected by most of the people she meets. She goes home with a man and during sex suffers flashbacks of the death of her patient in her attempts at CPR, which causes her to stop. The man feigns sympathy but continues to have sex with Maud, who appears to disassociate in response. As she is leaving, he taunts her by revealing that he remembers her hooking up with a friend of his during her own kind of hedonistic uh, period. While out walking, she encounters Amanda's new nurse and storms off when she realizes that her replacement enjoys a good relationship with Amanda. In her decrepit apartment, Ma begs for a sign from God who appears to tell her to be ready for an act that will demonstrate her faith. Repentant of her actions, Maud assembles a and I'm going to mispronounce this spunker mm -hmm. uh, for her right foot to practice the mortification of the flesh. Basically what it is, is I think it, I think she uses like a prayer card um, yep. and puts tax mm -hmm. um, in her and then puts that in her shoe and walks. That night, Maud dressed in a makeshift robe and wearing rosary beads enters Amanda's house after the care nurse leaves. She finds Amanda in bed, weakened. Amanda asks forgiveness for mocking her faith, 
and Ma joy- joyously reminds her of the time they experienced God's presence. Amanda reveals that she feigned the experience and she believes God is not real. Maude recoils in horror as a now demonic. Amanda hurls her across the room and mocks her for needing to prove her faith. In a delirious frenzy, Maude stabs Amanda to death with a pair of scissors. In the morning, Maude wanders onto the beach and douses herself with acetone before horrified onlookers. She utters her last words in Welsh, glory to God, as she self-immolates. AKA sets herself on fire. Mm-hmm. In her last moments, angel wings appear upon her, and the onlookers kneel in awe as Ma looks up to the sky, glowing with grace. The scene then smash cuts for a split second to the horrific reality of Ma being burned alive and screaming in agony. Yeah. <laughs> what a picture. It is. Um. Yeah. What? So. I know that we talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of what your first experience with the film was, seeing it at the fest. Um, but I know that when we were talking about you being a, a guest on the show, um, you had offered up some different films. And just a question to throw out to you is, why was St. Maud on that list for you. Yeah. So I think one of the conversations you and I had had was me coming on to talk a little bit about my relationship with not taking care of, but recognizing that my own parents were getting a little bit older. So we wanted to talk about elderly caregiving and what that looks like. And, you know, my first choice was Relic, which was a film that you've already covered and i mean there's a one-two punch if you ever want to (laughs) just need to crawl into bed and take a bunch of happy pills because those two would be great together yeah relic honestly two films that have come up in so many discussions recently are both relic and saint maude Mm -hmm. um because i you know i think that especially with these ending moments both have such kind of this harrowing and that makes mm-hmm. you just kind of step back because we're seeing, especially with St. Maud, there's throughout the film, there are these moments where um, Maud, AKA Katie is having these hallucinations, these visions. Yes. And so I think like the last maybe 10 minutes or so mm-hmm. um, are just basically her in that hallucination of sorts. Yeah. And, but you don't get a picture of in, in the previous sequences where, where she's kind of in that state, we don't mm-hmm. get that smash cut of no. what's really happening, but we do at the end. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more blatant at the end where it's like, here's what she's experiencing. And then here's what other people are actually seeing. And I think it works because it's the end of the film. So we, I mean, it's a gut punch as I mentioned, but I think it's also telling, right? Like it's the film tipping its hand to the audience saying, this is the truth. Even though I know that there are countless people who still 
are confused by this ending. And I think that that's kind of fascinating in and of itself. But even the moment when she kills Amanda, you know, when you watch it carefully, you can see there's this battle when Amanda, quote unquote, becomes demonic, as the Wikipedia entry suggests. And Maude gets thrown against a mirror and there's broken glass all over the floor. And then when she grabs the scissors and stabs her, there's no more glass on the floor. So yeah. you understand, oh, OK, what I'm seeing from Maude's perspective is not always what's happening. But it the film doesn't linger on it. It doesn't give you the smash cut of, oh shit, I made a big mistake because Maud is still in her hallucination. It's only in her moment of death that the film, I guess, offers you that reassurance or that catharsis of, ooh, this is what was really going on. Exactly. And I think that makes it just really impactful. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I there is a Vulture interview with, uh, the director and she talks a little bit about you know that being kind of a specific choice mm -hmm. um so i i really love that and um she also framed um when she was first writing the script which i guess she started writing it in 2014 oh wow. Um, okay so i think that's you know i think it's one of those things that we often because we often hear about how fast some right. things get turned around, mm -hmm. there are also many films that take years yes. to really come to fruition, especially directors and their first features. Yes, and also women. Yeah. So, um, but she talked about this film being kind of a love story mm -hmm. between a woman and the voice Right. in her head and I thought that was so brilliant because there's and we'll talk a little bit about it as well but there's you know there's kind of another interesting like is it a romantic mm -hmm. uh, connection going on between um characters so yeah I really like this film I saw it when it came to streaming and was super <sighs> excited because I was hearing so much about it from folks that had seen it. And when it was finally announced, it was coming to streaming and mm -hmm. we could all see it. I was super excited. So I watched it right away and love it. And I'm glad that you consider it, I think, kind of a, a new classic because I think mm -hmm. it's such a unique and kind of cool film that really stands apart. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the reason I, I sighed slash groaned is just because this film deserves husband. And the reason I sighed slash groaned is because this film deserves such a, a bigger reputation, like more people should be talking about it, in my opinion. And it got botched in part in release because of the pandemic and so on but then also it went to epics and that is a streaming service that no one has and no one wanted to pay for it even though this film was buzzy and garnering all kinds of critical accolades so i'm just really frustrated that it didn't get the push it deserved because like in my mind this movie is it's it's an awards contender like Rose Glass and Morford Clark should have been in awards consideration the year this came out. And it wasn't because it like nobody knew about it. No, 
that's such a good point about it not just coming to streaming. I mean, obviously, I always feel a certain way when folks say, well, this needs to be seen in theaters, especially around sure. the pandemic, because for for those of us who are mm-hmm. very you know, compromised, um, it seems still be risky. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think that, yes, it was great that it came to streaming. I was excited and I was basically like signed up for any streaming platform I could because I was so hungry for mm-hmm. that content. And so I was like, Oh, I have this and now I get to watch it. And this is great and perfect. Sure. Um, but I can only imagine, um, you know, seeing this in the theater, especially with some of these moments that play mm-hmm. out just audience reaction and that. Oh yes. What, what, what is going on? What is she mm-hmm. doing? What is she talking about? Um, so yeah, it's, um, and it, yeah, I think obviously then because films have quieter releases seen by fewer folks, then it becomes harder to get them to that place where they are going to get that awards recognition. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, um, this is just a a really great film, and I think a horror film that also speaks outside of horror, right? Um, yeah, to folks. So this is one of those that if you are, what you know, trying to pick a film that maybe you have someone who says, "Oh, that sounds like an interesting mm-hmm. uh, premise," but is it? Is it? Is it going to be gory? How scary is it? It's like, this is, I wouldn't say it's gateway horror, but it's definitely a film you can put on for the horror averse. Mm -hmm. I think that that is the perfect way to phrase it. Um, So let's talk about some of the themes and Mm -hmm. things that are, I think, just so dynamite in this film. And obviously the one that we kind of touched on and I think a big one is just kind of this relationship between caregiving and the care recipient or patient. Yeah. Now, now November is National Family Caregivers Month in the U.S., which my organization leads um, that effort. We set the theme every year. Um, so the month of November is... A very, 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 very busy one for me. <laughs> um, but obviously this is a different kind of caregiving dynamic. Yeah. Um, and so, but one thing that stood, that I think is worth talking about here is that Amanda is queer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that with individuals that are dealing with illness, chronic conditions, impacts of aging that are part of the LGBTQ community, um, their kind of caregiving situation will often look different because you don't have that often family dynamic um, yep. that can come in and provide that support. And so you have, 
you know, the chosen family, friends, Mm -hmm. neighbors, community members. And we do see that Amanda has a big um, kind of network of support. Right. I mean, her birthday party is banging. It looks like a good time, if not for the fact that, yeah, she's (laughs) singling out Maude for public humiliation. Yeah. As much as I do like Amanda as a character... Oh, she's fantastic, but she's a I, huge bitch. Yeah, I was like, uh, okay. Yeah. Was this M- the time and the place? Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> like, you could have had this conversation much mm-hmm. later. Um, and I will say, too, like, in, an interesting dynamic that they have as well is I think that Maud starts out just being very unintended caring mm-hmm. um towards her understanding because yep. yeah she is a bit abrasive and you can even tell when she's trying to um when amanda is trying to be kind of playing in to some of the things that Maud is saying she's mm-hmm. doing so with that with a bit of like sarcasm and smirk yes. to it and i think that Maud detects that a bit as well um but she just is so kind of wrapped up in her own beliefs that she wants to believe that she's succeeding in this mission to kind of save yes. this woman's soul. But, um, yeah, she, I, I feel like their dynamic is so interesting because she, she seems supportive at first, but then you start to see how Maude is starting to kind of isolate her from this really vital yeah. support network. And it starts with this woman that she's seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a moment too where Maud is happy that she's gone like a day without anyone contacting her. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I love about this movie is that there are no quote unquote good or bad characters. There's just Mm -hmm. people. So Amanda is fascinating, but also, as I said, she's a bit of a bitch and she doesn't treat Maude very well. Like making fun of someone's religion is not kosher. That's not okay. But then Maude is also not an easy character to always love. And I, I say that as a person who frequently loves unlikable characters. Yeah. So I love that Maude is pious. And I do think that she's gently homophobic and or she herself is so sexually repressed. She doesn't even know how or what she feels like. I do read Maude as a queer woman who has maybe never given herself permission to explore that. And I think her relationship with Amanda reflects so much of that. Like it really synthesizes all of the hangups that Maude has. But you're absolutely right. Like one of the biggest issues, I I went down a bit of a rabbit hole this morning anticipating we were going to talk about what happens when queer people get old. And it's fascinating because on one hand, there are statistics that suggest that as queer people, we are more resilient and we are better prepared to age because we have already had to overcome so many different obstacles. But then on the other hand, because we don't have 
a biological family connection. And and I think that this will start to change as more queer people adopt children and and have uh, families of their own in different ways. But typically for like a lot of queer people right now, you know, 60 plus, they probably don't have the same support network. So as you said, we need the chosen family, but we're also more inclined to then get socially isolated or die off because even like financially, we don't have the same level of support. So there's all these extra conditions that queer people may face as we get older. So even though we're better equipped to age mentally, because we've got the fortitude, we may lack the resources or the social connections that will guarantee we can survive and thrive. So well stated. And I think, you know, this is why organizations like SAGE exist. Mm -hmm. Because SAGE is an organization that really serves, supports, and provides information. And um, I think just a really great um, foundation for making sure that, um, you know, older members of the LGBTQ community um, are being part of some really important conversations around what care systems look like. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. like, what are some of the issues and how do we connect um, yep. individuals with the services and supports that they need in their community? Because it's one thing to say, like, okay, well, we're part of a national organization and this is what we do, but we know that there's a lot of agencies and businesses just like the agency that sends Maud to um, care for Amanda, mm-hmm. um, that stuff is really like the on the grounds in the community, in the towns right. um, that you connect folks with. And so, um, yeah, it's, um, there's, I think that also some of this stems from why the, uh, I don't want to say like the battle for mm-hmm. marriage rights was so, I think, important right. um, was because it wasn't just about like having kids Mm-mm. to care for you because let's face it. I think, especially as someone who cannot have kids um, biologically anyway, um, the idea of people saying, well, you're disabled, like, who's going to care for you if you can't have a kid? And it's like, well, I I wouldn't want to have a kid. If that's the reason to have a child, then you're doing it wrong. Exactly. Like, yes, it's great to have that family and that network um, there, but yeah, that's, you're, you're not, you're not birthing or having a family just as hired help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I, I don't know, like it's, it's complex, but, um, I think, you know, part of things changing in time, I think starts with, okay, well now spouses can be part of that care team in real mm-hmm. effective ways because yep. there were huge barriers to being able to be in the hospital, um, yep. with their partners and, be part of those doctor's appointments and part of that treatment plan. And so that's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully still much to 
much work to be done. <laughs> just a just a few things more to check off. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's showing that okay, we're now we're now kind of entering hopefully into a new phase where folks can start having I think a much more expansive mm-hmm. uh, care team uh, yeah. supporting them. So yeah, I I find it very interesting that this film does kind of depict what some of that experience looks like of having that network of support, um, needing that paid in-home care Mm -hmm. um, because you don't have someone that can be there probably 24-7 or as needed um, to do some of those things. Plus, you know, I think some people feel uncomfortable um, yeah. completely understandable of, hey, I don't want my my family member, be it my child, my spouse, my my parent, to, as an adult, do X, Y, or Z yeah. for me. Um, I feel like there's a boundary. Um, I actually just did a webinar with um, a caregiver who is caring for their parent and they spoke to that they said you know one of the boundaries that i have as a caregiver is i don't want to do x yeah because with my relationship with my dad i just feel like that is a boundary i i i want to keep and so that would have to then you know do you call in in home care Mm -hmm. um and paid help so um I think that the the caregiving piece is interesting. Also important to note that, especially in palliative or hospice Mm -hmm. um, care, um, you know, that the, the emotional, I think, components that are there as well, because the idea is that you're going in and there will be an end to the care to the care essentially which i think makes um the the choice that mod has made because i think before she worked in a hospital and it doesn't necessarily state that it was like a hospice facility Mm -mm. so the fact that she seems to have chosen to go into a specific kind of care yeah um, is interesting to me. What's interesting, yeah, because when I rewatched the movie, I think that it's exploring without value judgment the sort of dichotomies in a lot of the relationships or the choices that Maud has had to make since becoming Maud and quote unquote mm-hmm. no longer being Katie, right? Because we do learn from her friend uh, Joy that. You know, they used to work in this hospital. It wasn't a great hospital. It seems like it was maybe a little underfunded, but it's presented as better than working in hospice. Like Joy is surprised that Katie slash Maude is still working in the healthcare industry, but she almost seems to pity her for having to quote unquote, take the step down to working in hospice. But then when we meet the other nurse who takes over after Maude gets fired, she does have this, you know, I like going in, 
forming these really intense, intimate relationships with people knowing that there is an end and I'm helping them to reach to it. I mean, I think you can also talk about the conflation between caring for people, saving their souls, being their savior from a religious perspective, and then being their caregiver where they, you know, have to rely on you to take a bath or get a meal. And I, I think that's really fascinating too. Like, are people doing this out of the goodness of their hearts? Is it just a job? Or is it also they're getting satisfaction out of quote unquote, being someone's savior as they move towards the end of their lives? And I think the film really definitely negotiates that without saying, oh, this is good or bad. Yeah. I mean, and then that's in, I think, the field of work that I'm in. That's always a question of why do you do what you do? Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, it seems so sad. Oh, don't you want to do something else? And you're like, hey, like, like, I guess it's the judgment to me that becomes fascinating is like, yeah. how do we how do we judge people's worth and how do we decide what they get to do when it's their own lives? And I think, yeah, like that's something that does come up a lot in real life. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't think it's unique to the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. Um, I think lots of fields where you're working directly with people, you're providing, um, I don't know. Yeah. Is it a service that you're providing or is it, humane care and so on exactly exactly so um yeah that that's a really good point and i think you are right that it doesn't um really come down with a specific statement on well you know she's doing this out of selfishness and that's Mm -hmm. bad or it's just saying this is and i don't know maybe it's just like well this is what i know I know healthcare. And so I just want to stay in that field. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, the, the moments with both joy and then the Amanda's, um, second Mm -hmm. care. Well, I I don't know how many cares she's had. Right. Um, (laughs) But there definitely seems to be a couple, right? Yeah, because like you said, she's she's prickly. Yeah, she's a bit prickly. <laughs> um, but I there's you know they they had like this very interesting back and forth of mm-hmm. you know well where do you work where do you come from yeah. kind of like what trying to like get the gauge of like what's your credentials here mm-hmm. and then Maud not disclosing who she is yeah. goes on this, you know, um, what you do is so, so wonderful and so <laughs> compassionate and she's just fluffing herself up. Yeah. I find very funny. This film. Has, it's dark humor. It is dark. One of the line that truly kind of sends me to the floor every time is when she, I think is, very early on after she starts working for Amanda and she's ta- having a conversation with God and she's like, mm-hmm. you'll be seeing her soon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. 
I mean, the film also mines a lot of humor out of Amanda smoking, especially early in the film. Just the number of times that you see her lighting up immediately after doing something. And we know she's in a very advanced state of cancer. So, yeah, that that line feels like the cherry on top where it's like we see this almost montage of Amanda lighting up. And then it's like, oh, you'll be seeing her soon. Yeah. But you know what? I think that that regardless of if you are a a paid caregiver or a family Mm -hmm. caregiver, I know in my experiences, um, like I've talked about being a caregiver for my grandpa Mm -hmm. when he was diagnosed with bone cancer and like there were certain things that, you know, he didn't want to give up. Yeah. He knew that he would have to, Mm -hmm. um, but it took a journey to get to yeah. that point. Um, same thing with my grandma, who had COPD, passed away from COPD and smoked. Um, yeah. And now my mom with advanced COPD. Thankfully, she quit smoking um, a while ago. Okay. Um, but, you know, not... She had been diagnosed for a bit before she had quit. And I get it. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also probably with Amanda, if you're at kind of this stage, yeah, it's, it's a well, fuck it mentality. Yeah. Well, it's, it's your quality of life and how do you want to yeah. go out, right? Like we're told repeatedly that Amanda is going to die. There is no saving her. Sure. You can talk about wanting to save her soul with religion, but like that body is going to croak. It's just a matter of time and probably a very short amount of time. So when I see her smoking, when I see her drinking, when I see her wanting to have sex and be in the company of other people, I do think, yeah, you know, this is what I would probably also want, right? I'd want to be able to enjoy the time that I have left. But at the same time, you know, I think of my own relationship with my parents who are getting into their early 70s now. My dad has a history of heart disease. He's had two quadruple bypass surgeries. His heart is so bad now they can't even put stints in to help. And he was diagnosed with like late stage diabetes. So the amount of drinking that he's done, he has managed to cut back, but like he was basically a functional alcoholic when I was growing up. And that's been a similar kind of journey where every time I see my parents, I become the caregiver and the adult child to my childish parents. But then also I don't get to decide how they live their lives because I go to visit them a couple of times a year for a couple of days. And who the hell am I to tell an adult person how they get to live their life? But it's like, it's not easy. Like I want to tell them to do better and exercise and try to be healthy and make more friends because they isolate in their apartment. But it's like, I can't force them to do anything. And that's one of the things that I feel like Ma doesn't really acknowledge. Like they're, we see her pouring out four bottles of booze and it's like, Amanda's just going to ask someone to bring more booze the next time she invites people over because you can't tell someone how to live their own life. Exactly. And one of the first things that I did when I started in the job that I have now 
was I would go around and we did trainings in different communities mm-hmm. across the country talking right. about shared decision making. Oh, so okay. When your loved one is diagnosed with a condition, let's say cancer, mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole process um, as a caregiver and as part of that care team, mm-hmm. your loved one that you go through in terms of, okay, well, what we have this diagnosis, then it's all right. Well, what are our options for treatment, therapy, managing symptoms, all of that. So you go on like this huge information right. um, collection journey um, to figure out like what all those options are. And of course, always being in communication with, the healthcare providers sure. as well. Um, but getting input from other places um, because there may be something um, out there that the doctor doesn't have a lot of information on. Mm-hmm. Clinical trials come to mind. Um, and so then, all right, so you've got your options. Now here's the tricky part. Right. As a caregiver, you're talking through these options with your loved one. You're yep. going through the pros and the cons of each. Like, okay, we can do chemo, we can do radiation, we can do these things. Mm-hmm. And your loved one may say, no. Yep. I will not be doing that, 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 or that. Yeah. Thank you so much for the information. This is so great. Yeah. I can make an informed decision, but the decision is no. Yeah, and so guess what? As a family caregiver, you also have to serve as their advocate. Mm-hmm. And that puts you in a position, a very difficult position, um, and difficult in so many ways of aligning everyone else that is part of that care team to that decision Yeah, to say, you know, like if if you are part of a care team with siblings saying, you know, I know that we we want uh mom, dad to take this option. We mm-hmm. want them to have chemo, we we want this. They don't want it. And the sibling may say, No, we're gonna force them. Oh my they gosh. Can't. I can't so, even imagine. Yeah, these are the conversations and it's hard, but like you said, if an informed decision is being made, um, there's not, you know, you just have to support your loved one. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a whole, you go back to square one. Okay, so this right. is the decision that we're making. <laughs> so now what are the other things that we need to have in place? Yeah. So we want you to be comfortable. So what does that mm-hmm. look like? Um. So it's complex. And I'm glad that this film does, I think, even within its specific structure does show some of that complexity. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm really appreciative of the film, the more I watch it is we see Amanda as a very complicated figure, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's very easy and I've, I've been glibly saying, Oh, she's a bitch. Oh, she's like, she's difficult to love. She's unlikable, whatever. The reality is, is that she's in an incredible amount of pain in this movie as well, right? Like we can see, and I think Jennifer Ellie does a fantastic job in a supporting performance. Like whenever she 
like when Ma gets fired and she's not like Amanda's not in the film for a substantial portion of time. I miss her as a character yeah. because I think she's so fascinating. But we see it on her face when she's trying to get out of bed and into the wheelchair when she's in the bath, like how much even gentle sensations can be either painful or pleasurable for her. So when I see her drinking, when I see her enjoying having sex with Carol, I think, you know, yeah, this is a person who is still looking to live. And I think it's really hard for Maude to accept that. Like she is looking at what can you do that's going to prepare you to go into God's kingdom because you don't have a lot of time left, but she's not respecting Amanda's decision that she still wants to live before she dies. Exactly. And I think that there's this layer to it with, um, I think Maud's perspective, which I think is kind of a, a superficial for her because she obviously has this mm-hmm. plan. Um, oh yes. But <laughs> Um, I think, you know, how she is kind of rationalizing it on a specific level to be able to kind of, you know, put it in wave away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, is that, you know, she does have these moments alone with her. Like she's the one that is there doing some difficult things. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And seeing Amanda in these very vulnerable moments. Mm -hmm. And like you said, have, experiencing lots of pain i do think that amanda probably you know puts puts on uh you know she puts on a show yeah she She is a a performer after all exactly (laughs) when when her friends are around so that they don't see yes that and that is also a very difficult thing for a caregiver to Mm -hmm. to to deal with because that is a, a source of frustration. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm glad you get to have a good time. Uh, and I get to pick up the pieces. <laughs> yeah. And then when you're vomiting um, or you, you need help here, 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 um, I'm the one that has to do that. And mm-hmm. this is some of these complex emotions that can come with caregiving. Because if you're a family member doing this, you become really resentful. Oh gosh, yeah. And it it's it's a rough go. Mm-hmm. So I do again just this film and all of this is in under ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're getting lots of nuance here, just in these really small scenes playing out, and and I love it. Um, yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, one of the shots that really caught my eye this time around is Amanda's birthday party, because I think it's it's a standout moment in their relationship. Obviously, it ends in this somewhat cathartic slap where Maud gets to get a, a blow in. But of course, it ends up costing her her job. But before that, after she lights the candles on the cake and it goes in, She's asked by some, uh, you know, very like, just like jazzed up looking woman who you can tell is like probably come in from New York or Los Mm -hmm. Angeles or something. Right. Uh, And she's basically ordered. She's treated like a staff. And in some way she is, but she's actually not there to be Amanda's personal assistant or something like that. 
But this woman says, you know, like, get the lights. And we mm-hmm. see Maud in the dark, standing at the end of a table that is just filled with party favors and other things. And she looks like a piece of furniture. And it's such a great shot by Rose Glass because it really communicates how these people see someone like Maud, who you're right, is also seeing all of the vulnerable parts. She's cleaning up the messes, you know. She has that night out where she gets to go out and eat French fries in this shitty Coney Island town and then comes back early because, oops, Amanda went too hard and she's vomited all over the floor. Yep, and this is exactly to that point when she kind of scolds the friend and is like, why... Why did you let? Her? Why did you let her do this? <laughs> um. So, yeah, and and you're exactly right about the birthday party, and it's it. She really is like she's she's like a a maid, mm-hmm. um. Because the first, and it starts from the beginning because it comes off right off of that period of where she Amanda has been isolated. She's mm-hmm. told Carol back off yeah and she's like oh well now no one's calling and now i get to have her all to myself mm-hmm. and i can now really focus in on saving her soul sure and then she's like oh got a text i'm gonna have a birthday party mm-hmm. um, so go to it's the all store. back on yeah, like go to the store go pick up all this food then yeah. we get the shot of her making it all mm-hmm. and that's now i the workload. Yeah. Because like, she's still going to be expected to do all the other things, like get the pills organized, make sure that she's got a bath so that Amanda can put on the wig and the fancy dress and present as though everything is fine and she's not fucking dying. Yeah. Like I, these are the moments that I really do feel for Maud. And I think the movie does such a great job of reminding us, like, she is a caregiver, but yeah, she is a maid or a paid staff member for Amanda's frankly ungenerous proclivities like amanda is very narcissistic and self-centered but then we also recognize that Maud is partially doing this because it's her job but partially she gets so invested because she has prioritized this as a kind of religious conquest right like oh i've been tasked i'm so important in god's mission i need to save this hedonistic woman and it's like Maud, sweetie this is not your job. Exactly. And I think that this is, you know, kind of transitioning into talking about some of the more concentrated religious bits. Yes. Here. I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this. So we understand after she has a conversation with Joy that Maud is new to the faith. Mm-hmm. as they say um and i think taking this journey with her she's a martyr yes she it's her whole thing and so when we go back to seeing her you know kind of in these really difficult positions with amanda mm-hmm. she I feel like she's also like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I need to suffer like this because Mm -hmm. this is going to make that reward of winning her over so much just juicier, sweeter, 
Yeah. How exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and that's the thing. She has the voice in her head, God, mm-hmm. um, that she's speaking to. But everything is about her. Yes. She's winning. She's converting or saving Amanda for her own kind of merit badge. Yeah. And it's to make up, I think, largely in part, or it's implied to make up for the moment that we see at the very tip top of the mm. of the patient that she wasn't able to save. And we don't get lots of details right. about it. And in the interview that I mentioned previously, Rose said, this was a very explicit choice because I did not want it to seem like... Oh, one horrific event equals crazy person. Right. Oh, yeah. You got to be careful with that. And she's like, I wanted to steer away from that. And I think that's why it's also really important, too, that um, Joy has the conversation with her like, you know, it wasn't your fault what Mm -hmm. happened. So... We don't know. She couldn't no. save the patient. And I think that this is kind of like, well, now I need to literally walk on pins um, in order to redeem myself. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you read, and we don't have to jump all the way to the end or back to the end now, but I was curious to know if you find this film to be anti-religious because in some ways it does appear at least from Maud's perspective like she is condoning her past behavior you know we learn that she was sleeping with men she was frequenting bars and after this event with this failed attempt to resuscitate a patient in the hospital this is when she really converts to faith but she also stops doing the drinking, the sex, and so on. And I I wonder, do you think the film is saying, oh, she does go from one extreme to another extreme? And if so, like, does that make the movie anti-religious, especially given what happens at the end? I don't think it does, because even though this is framed in Catholicism, mm-hmm. like, I, the doctrine doesn't check out. Um, yes okay (laughs) i think that she's she's adapted Mm -hmm. it's it's an offshoot it's a mod offshoot of catholicism because again it's very i think about her and Mm -hmm. i don't think it's necessarily saying that religion is bad i think it's saying that the way that people use religion just as a means to feel good about themselves. Right. Find avenues to kind of fluff themselves up, mm-hmm. um, rationalize certain things. Yeah. Um, I think that it's making a comment on that religion. And, and you said it at the top, you know, never want to criticize anyone for their religious beliefs. Now that's with a huge asterisk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that asterisk is are those beliefs causing harm? Right. 
because I, I just don't believe that anyone should practice a faith in ways that should harm others. You can have your beliefs, mm-hmm. but when it is pushing you to do things that are harmful to others, yeah. you need to reevaluate what your relationship is with your faith mm-hmm. and why you believe the things that you do, because I don't think that they're necessarily, they're necessarily coming from the Bible verses that you're spouting. Right. To support them. So I don't think that it's necessarily saying, I don't think it's anti-religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's I also, and, and maybe I'm, this is a completely ridiculous thought. Oftentimes, end of life, people turn to religion, right? It's, yeah, yeah. And we have that moment, and, and I think it is probably a, a genuine comment from Amanda saying, like, I do kind of fear, like, death. Sure. That oblivion. Um, because that's what sets Maud, like, that's what gets her going. She's like, oh, yeah. yes, yes, this is fine. I see opportunity here. <laughs> and so, but she doesn't. She doesn't go down that path. Mm-hmm. And we often think about, like, oh, and, you know, someone is passing away. They want to have this experience. They want to be right. And for some people, yes, your faith is important, especially at end of life. Um, but I don't know. I think it, there's that connection of how we relate, um, you know, when you die, what happens in your soul and faith, how faith plays into mm-hmm. that with kind of this juxtaposition to mod and right. trying to force it on someone who's like, no, not like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I do find the end so fascinating. And I've actually, you know, I I joked that there are people who are confused by the ending. And I should probably, I should note my own asterisk slash caveat. I do think I'm actually one of the people because I don't look at this ending negatively. Like, I think it could be seen as a bit of a condemnation about her religious hysteria because it leads her to self-immolate publicly in front of people on this crowded beach but i i don't know that this is a case of her hallucinating versus the reality of what's actually going on i still look at it as she is experiencing that level of divinity right like she sees the clouds open up for her she is going to meet her maker and she has accepted it she is happy she has the wings and then People bow down to her. Like, maybe this is delusion. Maybe this is her being that religious martyr. Maybe it is religious hysteria. But I read this as that's her experience. And then what we see of her screaming in agony because she is actually burning to death is just what people are seeing on the beach. But I choose to read this as something of a happy ending for Maud. And maybe that makes me completely delusional. But I I do see... A happiness in this faith. Yeah, no, I agree one hundred percent with you. She she checked her boxes. 
She was like, I, I wanted to save Amanda. We get the, you know, Amanda's death. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that how much of that she's hallucinating. Yeah. Um, is interesting because it starts out being very normal. Yeah. Being. Yeah. And Amanda apologizes and says, mm-hmm. hey, I, I shouldn't have done that at the party. That was yeah. wrong. And we're like, okay. Yeah. And Maude is really happy about that. But then we get into the quote unquote demon, um, which I think for me, how I read this mm-hmm. and how I think it plays back into this kind of religiosity that Maud has is that when people talk about saving someone, they're talking about saving them from sin or saving right. them from kind of like demonic presence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that by killing Amanda, she's like, well, the demonic presence, I release there. you. Yeah. Like, well, now I've killed you in the demon and you're good. So mm-hmm. you go to heaven and everything is great because she's happy when she leaves. Yeah. Like she's smiling. And I, so I think that she is thrilled to go and, um, march down to the beach. And mm-hmm. I think she, what we see, Prior to the smash cut, I think is exactly what she is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had people clap back and say, well, no, because otherwise she wouldn't be screaming when you get the smash cut. But I think the reality is, is that she could be experiencing this religious epiphany experience while still acknowledging that burning alive would fucking hurt. Like, you know, we've seen it in Amanda where there's a performance level to covering up the pain that you actually feel. And I don't know, like, I I do think that there's a level of performativity throughout this film, right? Whether it's Maude pretending to be more religious or when she discards the garb so that she can go back to her quote-unquote hedonistic life when she goes to the bar and she has sex with a man and so on. Like, I think a lot of this is people trying on different guises to see what works or what suits them in the moment. And the end scenes to me are the flip sides of that. Like in one, she is religiously devout. She's going to go to heaven. She's got her fucking angel wings. And in the other side, she is burning to death and it really hurts. Exactly. And again, we disassociate. Mm-hmm. When we see her do it earlier, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we disassociate in in times, mm-hmm. and I think that that's exactly what's happening. And you can't necessarily disassociate from that kind of physical experience, right? <laughs> um, like I, I can't even imagine. No, no, <laughs> like burning <laughs> to death is oh. The most painful way to die. Um, And I think that, yeah, she's 
this is playing in her head and mm-hmm. she's experiencing that physical reaction. And right. it's exactly the, there's that switch over, which I find really interesting. And I don't know what, it, it's right before I think the smash cut, um, or maybe even just a smidge before that in the audio, you hear someone yell, and it's right before she sets herself on fire. Mm-hmm. Somebody stop her. Okay. Hmm. You hear that. And so I think that, again, to what we're talking about, she's still seeing, like, these yeah. people coming to her and, you know, kind of kneeling as she's getting ready to light herself. But there's that little break, yeah, that little crack where reality is. Someone is like, someone needs to stop this woman from setting herself on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's the same thing with her screaming. Like she can, you can paint over a hole in the wall, but it's still going to be a hole in the wall. Yeah. Well, so much of this film is also about letting self doubt come in, right? And I think. Amanda and Maud are good embodiments of that. Like in some moments, they're so confident in themselves and their position in the world and what they need to be doing. And then other moments, you see the crack in the veneer. It's a facade because no one is actually that confident. And part of Maud's journey is trying to figure out, is she on the right path? That's why she falls. That's why she sees Amanda as a demon figure, because she is having that slight little crisis. Am I actually doing the right thing? Have I accomplished what I think I'm meant to do? And the self-doubt manifests visually because it's a horror film as demons, as screaming figures of pain and so on. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that the moments after she gets fired and she has like her... I guess her fall, quote unquote. Yeah, her mod Catholicism Romspringa, I guess. Mm-hmm. Where she goes back to the bar um and uh kind of fools around with some some folks. Mm-hmm. I think it's also speaking to a desperation that she has of right. wanting to get out of isolation. Yeah. Because she is a very isolated person. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. And which is interesting because Obviously, this came out, was made, Mm -hmm. and came out pre-pandemic. But I think watching it during the pandemic, it speaks to an isolation. Sure. Um, Especially with Amanda, because it's like, who is coming into the house? And Mm -hmm. we never see her leave the house. Mm -mm. Mom mentions, you know, it would be nice to go out um, when she was kind of at that height of kicking out her friends right but so i think that that's because she just is so awkward when she's trying to like laugh along with the table oh um, gosh and your heart kind the of cringe breaks yeah <laughs> your heart breaks for her because it's like i get it like mm-hmm. you just want like she's she's having that crisis of well yeah. i i didn't succeed where i needed to Mm-hmm. And now I need to do this because I guess this is, this is life. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's why, too, when I I see Maud as a queer figure, you know, I do think that I I think you could make the argument that she's just sexually repressed and that's why she spies on Amanda and Carol. But I think she also like there's a difference between, oh, OK, somebody's having sex and I want to be a little voyeuristic. And then there's staying and leering through the crack in the door and watching the antics. Right. Like I. I think that there's a level of sexual curiosity that borders on either bisexuality or pansexuality that Maude is just unwilling to accept in herself. And let's be honest, it's probably much easier to make eyes with some guy in this bar, give him a handy, and then meet this ogre guy who is going to rape you because he won't take no for an answer. And you're right. It, it's so difficult to watch in part because Rose Glass is really good at amping up the cringe in these scenes. Like we know this is not the right thing for Maude to do, but this is what she thinks she deserves because God has abandoned her. And I don't know. I, I think it's so fascinating that really she doesn't have a social support network, right? You said she's isolated. She lives in this shit apartment. She's got the one friend in joy, but when she needs joy, that's when Joy isn't able to come out and help her. And you really think, oh, the movie would take a completely different direction if Joy had have come out that night, I think. Yeah. But yeah, like, I think it's also really important that we never see Maude engage with any other religious figures. She doesn't go to a church. She doesn't make exactly. a confession or anything, right? So she is self-isolating or she feels she has been isolated from all of these potential communities, be it queer, be it religion, be it anybody her own age it's mm -hmm. it's one of those things where i think this is a film that is cautionary about yes going too deep into religion but also about what happens when you become isolated from the community whichever one you belong to no i i love that and i think again going back to what we were talking about with you know is this film saying something about religion having an opinion about religion mm -hmm. the fact that we don't see her go to church yeah. or um socialize or meet up with anyone else that's kind of on her keel i think again it speaks to why like i say she she's on her own yeah um with this because i think if the film wanted to say something about religion with mm -hmm. a capital r <laughs> we would get more of that institutionalized oh i see representation mm -hmm. of it of right you know going to a church and seeing where you know hearing uh uh you know someone preach about x y or z and that mm -hmm. really getting to her she's self-taught yeah so um i good for her i, I don't know <laughs> Um, but also maybe don't learn everything you know about religion from like the Bible's worst parts or William Blake. Yeah. Interesting, interesting places mm -hmm. to really form your perspectives, yeah. on faith, which is probably why you feel abandoned mm -hmm. by God and only feel like he's come back when you have seen uh a couple of visions yeah and had um you know I, she i think it's right after her night out when she has that mm -hmm. moment where she's lifted up oh my god 
which is such great visual imagery in this movie. That scene almost takes my breath away. I just think it's stunningly gorgeous. Yes. And I think that that's, she's like, okay, God didn't abandon me. And now I need to, we need to home stretch this. Mm -hmm. And she does. Um, Yep. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I love what you said about there not being good or bad characters in this. I think you get complex characters mm-hmm. that you really want to unravel and say, what are you doing? Yeah. And why are you doing it? Like, where is this coming from? And I, I definitely think that, uh, going back to that interview with Rose, someone had asked about like, you know, is Maud a queer character. And she's like, well, there's a lot of interpretations of this. Right. She's like, I didn't necessarily set out to have her be a queer character because I think Mm -hmm. what's interesting. And I, I found this really, really a, a, a great thought. She's like, oftentimes any relationship, any close relationship between two women, Mm-hmm. is like there's this underlying kind of sure. eroticism to it. Yep. And I mean, I'm here for that. Mm-hmm. But also it's like, yeah, that's interesting. Why is that? Yeah. And- yeah. I mean, it's... I'll confess, I'm the first person (laughs) to lean towards like, oh, there seems to be an intimacy in this relationship. They must be queer for each other. And I think you can definitely read it in the moment. Like, I think it's so vital that the moment that Amanda and Maude really seem to come together is when they have this quote unquote epiphany around religion, when they touch each other's hands and it seems like they're almost orgasming on the couch. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes Maude really believe she's got a chance at saving Amanda. But also to me, it's like, Oh, is it also that you think you have a chance just full stop? with amanda because you've seen that she likes to have sex with women that's what we've seen with carol but also yeah i mean can't women just have a an intimate friendship or can't they just relate to each other obviously yes i think it's one of the not dangers but one of the multitudinous of paths that we have begun to go down as we come as we become more comfortable with talking about sexual fluidity and accepting of queer people back in the day, we would say, no, there's nothing there. You're reading too much into it. And now we say, oh yes, let's always leave that opportunity or that door open to say there could be a queer reading, but there could also just as easily not be a queer reading. Like I think the film works if you read Maude as a queer figure Mm -hmm. in the same way that it works. If you think, no, she's just trying to save this woman's soul. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that. I, I think it's one, and I, I've been saying this a lot with some of the films that I've talked about, which is very upsetting to me. Um, (laughs) I mean, you've been talking about a lot of like films that can go either way recently. Right. But, and typically I hate that. Like (laughs) I want rules. I want defined parameters. I want clarity. 
Like, you can give me fantastic world. You can give me lots of things. But I want to know no. what what is happening. <laughs> um, which is odd because I love... I, you love ambiguity. Come on. I know. It's, <laughs> I am fighting myself. Right. But I love how this film doesn't say mm-hmm. one way or the other. Because, yeah. Yeah. I think there's value in having either perspective. Sure. And yeah. I think it's interesting. And regardless of, you know, if Maud is queer or not, the sexual repression, I think, mm-hmm. is certainly there. Absolutely. that, it, I mean, it's apparent. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that, kind of ties in with that very nicely and why really it's only carol that we see her have a conversation with Mm -hmm. um she's not telling the other guy like never come back yeah um after you know they have their time together and Mm -hmm. they get sick we don't have that drawn out she kind of scolds him but she's not like leave and never come back yeah, it's also fascinating, too, that, I mean, this to me is the sign of, of a very modern contemporary film. But if this movie had been made in the 70s, which it seems to share a, a certain visual aesthetic with in the production design of Amanda's house. But if this had been made, I think even 10 or 15 years ago, we would have gotten a sex scene with Amanda and what's this guy's name? It's Richard or Christian. I can't remember which of the two men it is. It's Richard. It's Richard. Okay. I think we would have gotten a sex scene between them and it would have been implied that she was maybe doing something with Carol, but because this is a newer film, we actually swap it. And it's like, yeah, you can read into the fact that Amanda is probably fucking all of these people because yeah. she's a very liberated woman who clearly is interested in just having a good time. But I love that we actually get an explicit, well, explicit as in it's depicted on screen and it'd be very difficult to misread. But we see Amanda and Carol having sex and enjoying each other's company. Yeah. And the way that Amanda kind of lights up mm-hmm. whenever Carol is around it. It's honestly very sweet, especially it is. at the beginning of the birthday party when yes. she comes in and she's in that dress and mm-hmm. Amanda's like, oh my goodness, you're gorgeous. I love um, that moment. Yeah, it's she's so excited. And I think that also is the moment where it just, to me, really honed in on the fact that what Ma did was not only like ridiculous and mm-hmm. uh, like uncalled for. Yeah. Maybe rooted in some yep. internalized mm-hmm. homophobia. Um, I just because again, she just finds so much joy being around Carol. Yeah. And, to take that away from her? Who are you to say? Exactly. And she wasn't being... So, I think one of the difficulties that family caregivers have when they do bring in paid care, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. And it's interesting how it's, I think, kind of depicted 
in this film. One is that it can be hard for family caregivers to give over certain responsibilities and say, I can't do this. I know that when my grandpa went into hospice care, um, you know, he, my grandpa was over six foot. I'm four foot eight. (laughs) And so to like have to assist him to. It's a lot. um, Yeah. We got to a point where it's like, grandpa, this is not. It's not working. Like, it's more of a danger to you um, for me to do some of this. Like, Mm -hmm. let's have a conversation about what I can do Mm -hmm. physically for you. And we'll we'll go from there and we'll get additional help. And thankfully, like, I had my mom and my sister who were great helps um as well but it can be you know when paid care started coming in i i felt a little like okay are they doing a good job right what's happening um i don't know if i feel comfortable with them doing this Mm -hmm. thankfully the people because where i grew up is a very rural community a very small community i actually knew and had grown up Uh, with the hospice nurse Mm -hmm. um came in regularly and she was such such a wonderful wonderful person and when my grandpa passed she sat there all day um, with us while we waited for them to come and get the body and just amazing um but that's not going to be the experience that a lot of people have. No. And so there can be some difficulties there. Also just defining like friends, family, um, what, what do those dynamics look like between that kind of support and communicating with the paid mm-hmm. support? Cause I remember after I had, um, my valve replacement, my ex um i had a nurse that would come in um and do blood work and just some of the medical stuff at home and it was okay well what information do i need to have right to, to provide to them you know what kind of questions should i be asking and it's it's a challenge. Um, yeah. And so I'm from, I would assume, the paid caregiver side, it's like, all right, well, I also have to start figuring out where lines are. What, how mm-hmm. do I communicate? Who do I communicate with? What, what are the different dynamics that I need to navigate here? So right. I like that there are elements of that, I think, depicted in this film with the different mm-hmm. people that are in Amanda's life and how it's like, okay, well, what are the boundaries? What, what are the limits? How do we communicate? Because there are ways to communicate with, if you, I would assume I'm not a paid caregiver, mm-hmm. um, but I would assume that there are ways to communicate. If you are that in-home care provider to say, Hey, um, you know, 
due to the medications that this individual is on, you know, there can be some real issues with drinking, with these types of things. And I just want you to be aware, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we don't want anything horrible to happen. Yeah. Yeah, like the party could have ended with Amanda dying because she shouldn't be drinking champagne because it doesn't mix with her drug cocktail. Exactly. And so, but Maude does not know how to have. No. I mean, Maude has difficulty relating to people at the best of times, but then she's got this religious investment, a possible sexual investment. Like she is too wrapped up in what is going on in Amanda's life. And that's why I think, you know, we do see that moment with the next caregiver where, oh, look, she and Amanda are out, outside of the mansion. And they have a better relationship because that woman is likely better able to draw the line. Like, this is what I do do, and this is what I don't do. Yeah, and it is interesting that that's, you know, again, that dynamic, because when she's with Maude, she doesn't leave the house. Mm-hmm. Mom throws it out there, but it's just, that's not the dynamic. That's not. No. So, um, I, yeah, I, I appreciate that you're also getting given that little sliver of mm-hmm. those different, different caregivers are going to have a different dynamic with their, yeah, the person that they're caring for. So I just, Loved even that, and Ma just being like, "Well, good for you. You're doing great work." <laughs> I'm not jealous. I'm not angry. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> There's just, uh, I mean, that's why I think it's so funny, right? Like at the end of the day, I think this movie is doing so much with such a short runtime, with such a small cast of characters, and. I have seen people dismiss this film as like, oh, it's just, she's crazy. And then, you know, she lights herself on fire and that's all there is to it. And I just think, oh, you are willfully misreading the complexity within this film. Exactly. And that's what I think you could even, you know, this is definitely a film I would argue is just rewarded with, um, each repeat like repeat mm-hmm. doing because you are able to kind of like change your your perspectives each time you go in and say okay well absolutely let's think about this and how this dynamic is playing out and how that leads to the end mm-hmm. um so i i don't know i think this film is is really good and i yeah. would agree with you that this is a a new classic and yeah, it's now on Amazon Prime, so not at Fantastic. least on Epics. <laughs> no shade to Epics. It's just no one was signing up for Epics so that they could watch St. Maud, and that's a shame. Yeah, exactly. Now, it would be stellar to hear that Epics had just a banger of like a month or two with subscriptions so that people could check out this film. But... Mm-hmm. This is not so, which I think is why now, like I said, in so many different conversations I've had, this film has come up. And I'm like, oh. People are finally finding it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, like I said, I think that this film also just itches or scratches a lot of those subgenre itches that I have. And Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's really special. So it's available out there if if you haven't seen it. Um, you just listened to it, us talk about it. Oh my God, I film. can't even imagine. <laughs> so now go and watch the film and be like, yep. Yeah. That These two misread it. What are they talking about? <laughs> exactly. Or that could be your perspective too. Be like, what were they even saying? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not what happens at all. And I beg to differ with you. Come fight us. We yeah. we welcome the conversation. Exactly. All right, Joe. Is there anything else in the film that you want to hit on? Uh, you know what? Let's see if we can get someone to respond to this as opposed to you and I having the conversation. But one of the things that I noticed is that Maud sees Carol leaving with money after the night that she has mm-hmm. with Amanda. And we didn't really talk to you too much about Carol. She's not properly a character like she's in here but we don't really know that much about her aside from the conversation that she has with Maud in the kitchen and I would just love for people to let us know do they think that Amanda is paying Carol for sex is that like a sex worky kind of relationship or is it just that you know she likes Amanda Mm. Or is it just that she likes Carol and she's saying, you know what, like go out and treat yourself to something nice because I care about you. I so love that you brought that up because yes, let's have people respond to this. And then that person and I can have an even more complex conversation about the interplay of individuals with disabilities, chronic conditions, illnesses, Mm -hmm. and sex work. Yes. Oh my God. I want to hear that conversation, please. So, guess is this a sick person paying for sex because this is the mm-hmm. only way they can have sex? Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, in the show notes, there's going to be contact information. Reach out. Let us know. Um, would love to hear people's perspectives on that because, yeah, again, to your point. You can read it lots of different ways. It can be like, mm-hmm. hey, thanks for coming. Um, go treat yourself to 1,800 coffees. <laughs> Truly. <sighs> All right. So that is St. Maud. Again, check it out. It is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also going to post in the uh, show notes the link to the um the interview that I referenced with uh, Rose Glass, just because I think she hits on just some really interesting little points and there's lots of interviews with her, but I really found this one to be pretty, pretty tight and succinct and um, a good place uh, to kind of get some additional reading in. Nice. Okay. Excellent. All right. So Joe, I know at the top we talked about the various places that you can be heard and read but now it is the time for plugs okay yes uh i can be heard on many different podcasts but i do post about the ball on my social so that's probably the easiest way to follow along and i can be reached at b stole my remote and that's the letter b excellent and again all of that will be posted in the show notes so joe thank you so much for talking about this amazing film 
Um, and I think also sharing a little bit about, you know, you talked about your experience with your parents. Um, it, I always just feel overwhelmed with gratitude when a guest will kind of share a, a bit of how a film personally speaks to um, kind of an element of their life, part of their personal experience, because I think that is so interesting and mm-hmm. really gracious. So thank you for that. Mm. Well, thank you for providing me the space to do so. Yeah. Um, and a huge thank you to, of course, Anatomy of a Scream for being the heart and the home of Bodies of Horror. Um, I usually will now enter uh, plugs for the other shows on the network where you can hear Joe, such as White <laughs> Ladies in Crisis, Sexy and Surreal, because you know we love Cronenberg around here with a deep passion, um, as well as The Girls on the Boys, mm-hmm. which is so much fun. Um, love that show. So, yeah, um, make sure that you, if you're here, I'm assuming that you are um, subscribed. But if you're not, y'all. What are you doing? Yeah, come <laughs> on. Like, you just do it. Like, you know you want to. You got, I just laid out amazing shows for you to listen to in addition to this. So, yes, um, please subscribe, rate, review. Mm-hmm. Um, it is always helpful. So going back to um, the podcasting uh, deep dive that Joe did, Joe and I did at the top, um, it is very important, I think, also just to um, show support, but also help it be seen by more people, be listened to by more people. So mm-hmm. um, it's just a few seconds and it's so beneficial, but really grateful for folks who have reached out, who have engaged. Um, it means a lot. So um, if you want to reach out, please do uh, let us know your thoughts on the pop quiz that we we sprung there at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you can reach me via email at uh, bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. And of course, I'll have my socials uh, in the show notes as well. Um, so thank you for listening and until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.